Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. Are you surprised to hear us? It's me, Michael, and... Andy! And it's Andy! Andy, thanks for coming by. Guys, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's been a pleasure all summer bringing you these headlines <laughs> and the shenanigans and all the things we've been doing together. That's right. It's been a you, pleasure. Hope you guys don't miss headlines and shenanigans this week, but... Uh, we decided to do something a little special here for the uh, people on the free platform, all of our listeners. We decided to release a, uh, it's the second Patreon exclusive episode that me and Andy ever did together. And it's the Texas Tower Sniper. It you is. You can't a, read the title. It's a pretty good, it's a pretty good conversation we have together on that one too. It's one of our first long form episodes together. Yeah. So I mainly just want to get it out there because it is one of the most in-depth timelines I think I've ever done. Maybe ever will do. Ever will do. <laughs> Learn <laughs> from my mistakes. That, I just want that documented. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, just make sure everybody knows. Listen, this is yeah. what I can do. Look, <laughs> look at what it, what I'm capable of, okay? Cut <laughs> me some slack, guys. Look at what <laughs> I can do. Cut me some slack. But anyways, uh, guys, we just want to touch base with you, let you know we are still alive. We are still working on uh, coming back in September 6th. Speaking of that, we will have one more episode of Headlines and Shenanigans next week here on the free platform, and then nothing from us. Until September 6th. Radio silence. Okay, radio silence. Um, of course, there is Patreon, patreon.com slash Guys, where if you were a patron, then you could have possibly already heard this Texas Tower Sniper episode. But either way, we hope you will enjoy it. Uh, if not, there is a special treat that we recorded just for Patreon this week as well. Um, but the Texas Tower Sniper was originally released on March 29th, uh, 2023. Andy, do you remember way back then? Oh, it was a, I think it was I a think, Tuesday. I think I it was, <laughs> we never released on a Tuesday. I don't um, remember it then. We, <laughs> well, we probably would have recorded it three days before that. Either way, early spring, right? Right. Ah, uh, yes, the springtime. You know, early spring, it was probably lovely in the studio, not sweltering. Oh, no, it's all nice and chilly in here now. <laughs> Actually, we got AC in the studio now. What an update. See, we, we are, are growing here as a podcast. Living in the modern age now. <laughs> it's, it's downright chilly in here, if I say so myself. You just can't hear the wetness on my face like you normally can. <laughs> That's right. All right, Andy, we ain't got a whole lot of time for shenanigans. Uh, they want to hear the episode. This is already a lengthy episode. So what else did I, was I supposed to mention in this intro? So, yes, guys, we do have one more episode coming up of Headlines and Shenanigans, yeah. and we yeah, will be talking about uh, the Long Island serial killer, Rex Hewerman. Right. There's been a little bit more news about that. We'll try and keep you guys up to date with that as it yeah, does I got come some, out. Yeah, I got some stuff to uh, dispute with you about Rex Hewerman. I think you were spreading some misinformation, according to the internet. Not really, but... Uh, I want to talk about it. There is a lot of misinformation out there on Rex Hewerman right now. Exactly. Like I said, we this is one of the first times we've ever gotten to cover an active serial killer investigation and trial and yeah. you know, actually opening up more investigations. So yes, we will probably be bar- bombarded with information, misinformation, rumors, you know, hearsay. Yes. And, you know, we, we'll have to get it all squared away. But yeah, we want to keep an eye on the Long Island serial killer. And we wanted to let you guys know that we will be back after this last episode of Headlines and Shenanigans, which will be coming out next week. Right. And then what's coming, what comes next will be all new territory, uncharted <laughs> before. Exactly. And guys, we're, we're, we're going to be also streamlining here, True Crime Guys Productions. We, uh, we, what's, what's the expression, Andy? We just, we got too many, too many chickens and they all hatched at once or something like that. Uh, uh you know what I mean? Uh, too many knives or too many knives too, in the flame or what is it? Too, too many, many rods in, in the, the fire. fire. Yeah. Too many rods in the fire. Yeah, I don't like know. That. We're not blacksmiths. Uh, either way, we had too much going on here at TCG Productions. Um, and then after Lauren left, it kind of, you know, it changed the dynamic of a lot of things. You know, no more Lauren synopsis. We don't have them as much for Sandu stories. Um. But I think Full House Fantasy podcast 
uh, is going to make a return. Don't quote me on that, but I've heard rumors today. I actually spoke with Lauren today. So I think maybe Full House Fantasy is coming back. Who knows? But either way, here at True Crime Guys Productions, we are going to be focusing on True Crime Guys proper here on this platform, obviously, as well as on YouTube, um, and also Sandu proper, Strange and Unexplained, where we will focus, still focus on unsolved, strange, uh, paranormal phenomena, and uh, maybe Andy takes on a part of that show as well. But we want it to be more of like a uh, just a, a streamlined monologue-type show, like the beginning of Strange and Unexplained is kind of how it's going to be when it comes back, guys. Um, and we hope to have that in video format as well. Maybe me and Andy will take turns. Maybe sometimes I'll let Andy read the old script, you know? Hey, there's a few yeah. cases I got my eye on as well that are, right. are piquing my interest. So That's right. Strange and Unexplained gives us that platform to kind of to go beyond, do the weird stuff, do the you know, the stuff that lays on the outskirts, and then also, you know, all this alien shit. We gotta talk about all this alien stuff that's coming out, Andy. Well, that's not even strange or explained anymore. It's all explained it's, now. It's all explained as I lies. Mean, it's still strange to us. It was all lies. But it's because it's taken them forever to explain it to us. But but either way. Um, But guys, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. It's the Texas Tower Sniper. And uh, yeah, we get all crazy with the intro music, you know, how we do on Patreon. So uh, if you'll excuse that, there's like a minute of of pointless banter here at the beginning, and then we get right into the case. All right. Well, guys, we'll see you next week with the new uh, headlines and shenanigans. And uh, keep creeping until then. Guys, stay with us. We're evolving. That's right. Enjoy the show, guys. See ya. Bye. Party Creepers! Woo! Harmony! Man! <laughs> Andy, really for your second Party Creepers, man. I, I know, I had to. I'm watching for the cues. You're watching for the cues. <laughs> you're watching for the cues. I know, it was always funny because, uh, you know, when me and Lauren would record over Zoom, uh, you know, even if I watched for his cue to start it, it was still too late. It was already too late. So, like, when we would get the, I'd get the audio and I'd be trying to lay them over each other, I'm like, what the hell? It's like the rest of the conversation I could fix except for the party creepers and be like, I have to cut this section and move my party creepers up so it lines up. It's just this whole like, ordeal. Just because of like a little bit of a lag or something yeah. on the call? Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> of Zoom. You know, there's always that a couple seconds or whatever. Yeah, you got that sweet little... And we're yeah. back. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> now to you, Dan. No, but seriously, guys, um, super excited about this one. This I killed myself on this timeline, I'm not even going to lie. Um, I got a book called The Texas Tower Sniper by Ryan Green. I actually love Ryan Green as a true crime artist, honestly, hmm. as an author, rather. Um, I read another book by him called... <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're an artist of true crime, that's not a... Yeah. That's, that's, I think that's just called a perpetrator. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, he, he writes, he writes very well. He does a lot of research and also he, the way he portrays the story, um, the way he embellishes some of the things are very tasteful. I don't think it's, uh, I wouldn't even call it exaggeration. Honestly, Mm -hmm. it's more like, uh, he's just pay attention to small details and little instances in every interview that he does. And he's, he's an amazing true crime author. So Ryan Green, highly recommend um, this book was about four hours, I would say, give or take, maybe a little more. I listened to it on uh, time and a half or time and point seventy five. Oh, you're on time and a half now. Yeah, <laughs> you're in yeah. overtime now. <laughs> I'm in halftime. Um, but yeah, so guys, that's um, our main source for this, as well as others. If you guys want to go down the rabbit hole um, of the Texas Tower Sniper or Charles Whitman. Uh, feel free to check our sources down below. Murderpedia, also another great source for this. Um, a podcast called uh, is it All Crime, No Cattle. 
a Texas true crime podcast did a phenomenal episode on this as well. I believe they might be a husband and wife duo. I'm not positive. Um, but either way, they do a great job. So highly recommend that podcast as well. Nice. All right. Anything else you want to say before we get into the intro? Uh, I think we could probably go ahead and plug that TCG TikTok channel we got yes, going now, Michael. Dude, we do need to TikTok do that. We are actually youngins. on TikTok now that they're getting sued. <laughs> so this we're is just, great. Uh, we're just, we just like to get on a little we, bit behind. <laughs> just a little bit behind. Um, but yes, nonetheless, we are on TikTok. Our official screen name on TikTok is underscore true crime guys underscore because some asshole decided to take our name beforehand. So hopefully we would buy it from them. Which we are not gonna do. So I'm gonna laugh. I'm, I'm really gonna laugh when we get an email or just like a text message. It's like it was Lorne like four years ago. It's like, oh yeah, I just bought that just in case. You <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. Right? That does sound like something we would have done. Um, <laughs> totally forgot my head. Because we did the same thing with our URL because it was taken for a while. Like our actual truecrimeguys.com was taken. Mm-hmm. And somebody wanted like $2,500 for it. And we're like, no way. We're not paying you $2,500. <laughs> so we just waited a few months and then it came open again. So there we go. We snatched it up. Um, but yes, guys, go give us a follow on TikTok. We will be putting up, um, you know, 15 to 30 second clips of each episode. And uh, my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, Melody, is running that for us, which I am super thankful for because I hate that platform. Yeah, you don't want us um, running that platform. <laughs> I don't want to be on it. I don't want to be on it. I'm, I'm good. So she is, she's taking full control of that, and I think she's doing a fantastic job. So please, guys, go follow us on TikTok. Go leave some comments, share the videos, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. All right? You ready to get into this? Let's do it. Party Let's get creepers. into Charles Whitman. Let's do it. All right. We'll see you on the other side of the intro. BBC Television News now presents a special program on today's mass murder in the capital city. Here is KTBC Television News Editor Neil Spells. Good evening. One of history's worst mass murders occurred here in Austin today. By official count tonight, 49 persons were hit by gunfire. There are 16 dead and 33 injured. It started last night when a man reportedly killed his wife and his mother. That same man apparently rounded up an arsenal and supplies this morning and then went to the observation deck of the University of Texas Tower. It was then that terror rained down from the tower. There must have been a hit that last time. We hear people outside of our building in an area where we can't now look safely saying, let's help that boy. Does he need help? Someone must be down. sirens screaming for the 90 minutes that the gun battle was in progress. It was hot, past 90 degrees on the ground, probably much hotter, high atop the tower with the sun ricocheting off the limestone with the same intensity as the police bullets. The university campus resembled a battlefield. How many have you seen that are dead today? Just one. I hope not anymore. But there were more many more and the full impact of today's tragedy still has not been felt because the magnitude of the crime is practically impossible to comprehend no explanation of motive in any normal context is available from the tower i have never seen or have i ever imagined 
anything like. All right, guys, let's get into it. Please. Let's start with the birth, because you know that's where people start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's up for debate. I was, <laughs> it's, that's true. We got all kind of, That is so true. <laughs> Never mind. I, I spoke way too soon. Oh, hold on. We Sorry, pro lifers. Hold on a second. Uh, hold on. We thought this was going to be a true crime podcast. It turns into a political podcast real Instantly, quick. Let's go ahead and start. Right? Our first topic abortion. Um, no. <laughs> But Charles Joseph Whitman was born in Lake Worth, Florida on June 24th, 1941. He shares a birthday with Mindy Kaling, mm-hmm. which is Kelly from The Office, if you're unfamiliar. Uh, Tommy Lister, Debo oh. from Freaking Friday, Freaking Debo, rest Tommy in Lister. peace. Rest in peace. And uh, I had to put J.J. Reddick. You had to put JJ. I had to put JJ Reddick. <laughs> Just I because mean, he's from North Carolina. Yes. And he played for Duke. He's a legend. He's a North Carolina legend. And I had to put JJ Reddick in here. Dude, I was JJ Reddick in my backyard, dude. Shooting dude, hoops. I, uh, you know what I'm saying? I went to an all-star game right after he graduated from Duke. I went to like a celebrity all-star game that my dad got tickets to. And I think he like gave away a pair of autographed shoes. And like oh, I just no happened way. to be the one who got them. And they were like black uh, Adidas or like black Nikes and they had like yeah. the blue swish and they were signed by J.J. Reddick. I am not a Duke fan. I never was. And back in high school, I was a big Carolina fan. Oh, no. But I just got them. And my, one of my best friends was with me who was a huge Duke fan. No, you didn't. Yeah, I sold them. Wow. Not to him. Asshole. <laughs> I was oh like, oh my nah. gosh. I was just wanting to troll him until I was like, look at these shoes I got. They'll be worth so much money to somebody else. <laughs> somebody would love to have these. Somebody who can I mean, if I these? had somebody in my life that would like them, I mean, I would give them to them, but I just can't think of anyone at the moment. Yeah. Ah, maybe, maybe someday. God. How old were you? What year was that? That was, I think I was probably like 17, maybe 16 or 17. Okay. Okay. You remember me back then. So yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. 2009. Right? Something like that? Mm-hmm. 2000... Somewhere in there. I can't remember. That was something yeah. like that. Right on, dude. Man, well, I wish you still had those shoes. I fit, they fit me, too. Oh, my God. You wear the same <laughs> size as J.J. Reddick? Wow. <laughs> well, when you were a kid. <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah, probably. All right. So, anyways, back to uh, this asshole Charles Joseph Whitman. Now, we'll, we'll talk more about whether I think he's guilty, whether we think he's a piece of shit. Um, there's a... This case opens a lot of discussion. Um... And, you know, in the past, we really haven't covered a lot of these spree shooters on True Crime Guys because we don't want to make them famous. We don't want people copycatting this, thinking that, oh, I'm going to, my name's going to be out there and all this shit. But I feel like with Charles Whitman, this is more of a mental disorder. And I think it's something that the light needs to be shed on. And like I said, I'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast when we're talking about his psychology. True motives and things like that and it's also because this is this one is actually a a bit more of a historical event it's not just because we do experience a lot of mass shootings but this is this is a bit more of a a historical event because of like it was kind of like the first big one exactly so it's not it's people study this case to be like is this where it all started or is but right right okay uh but charles he was the eldest of three boys he was often described as a good-looking intelligent popular all-american young man his younger brothers were Patrick and John, and that's really all you need to know about them, because who cares? Because they they just kind of... Patrick and John just kind of towed the line, honestly. Um, and they didn't really get the brute of uh, their father's abuse, their father's uh, expectations. That was more put on Charles as the older son. Yeah. Um, Charles's parents were Charles Sr. and Margaret Whitman. They, well, at least Margaret, were devout Roman Catholics. 
His dad, on the other hand, was a devout asshole. He was strict, abusive, but nonetheless, a self-made man who put up with no bullshit and ran a very tight ship. Yeah. Okay, like, so tight that, like, when Charles went to the Marines later in his life, he was like, this is a nice relief. It's like, oh this my is god, nice. I can I, finally breathe. I only gotta scrub my shoes once a day? This is nice. <laughs> only one bed inspection? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh... When things weren't done Charles Sr.'s way, like we've alluded to, uh, he was no stranger to violence. Things got pretty pretty rough, and no one was excused from this in the family, not even his wife. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote from Charles Sr. about his wife. Quote, I did on many occasions beat my wife. I have to admit it because of my temper. I knocked her around, but my wife was a fine woman, and she understood my nature. End quote. Yeah, just a, just a self-proclaimed wife beater. Just, just like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but she still loves me, okay? Don't you? It's just don't you? It's that fucking old school mentality where the husband like has to run shit, everything has to be done his way. And and I think a lot of because of the pressure put on men at that time, they every little imperfection that their family showed, they took it personal. It was and therefore it made them angry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Plus when, you have to remember his the Margaret is a devout Roman Catholic from like from her childhood yes. through her life. So she's, she's divorce used, is not really on her that's, radar. That's so. right. That's right. Um, he was also a self-confessed gun fanatic, Charles Sr. I'm talking about here. And he brought his boys up with a gun in their hands. His words. Teaching each of them to hunt as he slowly beat out any compassion that the boys had. And I put that in here because he noticed uh, little Charles Jr., uh, who's the main subject of our podcast today, had an affinity for animals growing up. And as his most dad, children do. As most children do. Um, and his dad hated that. His dad hated that he was had pinpoint accuracy, even as a child, when it came to you know a can or a target or a paper target or something like that. But he didn't want to shoot a squirrel. He didn't want to shoot uh, a bird or whatever. But uh, he quickly got over that. Yeah. Quickly. His dad, like I said, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And, and of course, when he finally did shoot an animal, his dad was probably ecstatic. So, oh, yeah. So getting that approval from your father, mm-hmm. getting that type of response would make him like, oh, oh, this is a good thing. Yeah. I, I want to do this now. I, I think I, I heard him say, like, he, yeah, he, he didn't even brag about how good of a shot he was until he shot an animal. It's like right. once he finally shot a, killed an animal, he was like, oh, that boy can hit an eyeball at a squirrel at 100 yards. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I could have done the same thing with a dollar, but you didn't right. care until I shot a bird, until I shot something that actually mattered That is to exactly you. right. Exactly right. Yeah, like we said, little Charles Jr. was a natural when it came to these things. He caught on quickly and was quite accomplished in hunting and the outdoors at a very young age, making Eagle Scout at just 12 years old, which is, I mean, I think there's been quite a few scouts that have probably done that now, but at the time, that was like unheard of. I think he was the first that, one. I think he's the youngest person, at the, at his time, he yeah. was the youngest person to ever achieve Eagle Scout. I mean, I'm sure there's some genius that's been born between now and the, oh, then yeah. and now that's that's done it but yeah i did i thought uh, I, I don't know if that was actually proven or not that he was the youngest eagle scout in, yeah. in history or at the you know at the time the first one at 12 years old but right yeah. right right um but yeah at the time he was one of the youngest to achieve this he also was awarded god and country award and he served as an altar boy in his local church what, what do you uh, get that award for I don't know. I, I mean, I'm guessing for his in the in the Boy Scouts and also his his part in the church. I guess so. I was just like that um, seems like just a made up award. Like you you get the yellow award. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, 
I don't know. I guess, like I say, with his service in the church and also his his uh, accomplishments and outdoors and whatnot. Yeah. I yeah, know. I guess so. Just that old old school mentality. Yep. Yeah, and it seemed like nothing could really uh, slow Charles down until at age 16, he encountered his first true worthy opponent, appendicitis. You son of a bitch! You <laughs> son of a bitch! <laughs> and he... I beat it out of your toe! <laughs> That's probably what his dad wanted to do because oh. his dad didn't even want to accept that he was sick. When he started complaining about it, he thought he was just bitching, you know, because that's that's a, his dad saw sickness of any kind as illness. So or like weakness. Weakness. That's what yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He saw it as weakness. And so when he first got appendicitis, you know, they ignored it for a while, but they found out this shit's serious, and he underwent an appendectomy, obviously. Um, and he actually, Charles Jr. actually adored his time in the hospital. It was, it was his first break from his father. And also the you know the world around him's expectations. You know yeah. he felt like he needed to be perfect. And and you know it's sometimes even when a child seems to excel at every single thing, sometimes that makes it even harder because they have yet to experience failure. True. Right. So with every every task, every new challenge they take on, it's like the pressure becomes a little more a little more bearing, a little more insurmountable because they don't want to fail for the first time. They don't yep. want to be, you know, humbled for the first time. You, know? you have to think also this this time in the hospital, it's like the first time he's ever actually been coddled or cared for or like people are actually like waiting on him hand Precisely, and foot. because when his mother tried, his dad would slap the shit out of her. Yeah, it's like so this is the first time he has people actually walk up, are you okay? Do yep. you need anything? Can I get you anything? No, yeah. just rest. And like yeah. he's shocked by this. He's like I get to rest. <laughs> He's like, just one eye open the whole time, like, where is he, where is he, where is he, where is he? <laughs> right. Well, not long after getting out of the hospital, um, after his appendectomy, maybe he wanted to go back. We don't know. But uh, he also experienced an awful motorcycle accident, placing him in the hospital for an extended amount of time. The cause of the accident is still unknown to this day. Some even speculate that Charles crashed on purpose. <laughs> um, you know, this could have caused some frontal lobe damage as well, which they did find out later in life. Um, because, you know, frontal lobe damage has been tied to changes in mood, even changes, like complete changes in per- personality. One person comes to mind, Sam Kinison. Mm-hmm. Sam Kinison was a very happy, joyful, but not funny person. And then he got hit by a car and he became an asshole, angry as hell, but funny as shit. True. He also had his heart broken. The too. same thing happened to Rosie O'Donnell. That yeah, never. The sure same well. thing happened to Rosie O'Donnell after long hospital stints. After getting hit by a car with head trauma, their personalities changed and they got funny. And a lot of the things with, with frontal lobe trauma is your inhibitions. It lowers that that reasoning of I shouldn't do this or should I do this? I'm just gonna do it. Yep, yep. And you know, maybe he just wanted to get away from his dad. Honestly, who knows? Obviously. Um, but I know one thing. I know he did on the night he stumbled home drunk from a high school party. Yeah. He did not want to be around his dad at that time. His father was waiting in a lounge chair by the pool. Charles figured his father would be fast asleep by that time, but unfortunately he was wide awake as Charles tried to slip in through the back gate and tiptoe around the pool. Little this did he is, know he was in the boss fight, in for the boss fight of his life. That's just, this is so like just this is, red foreman to me I, I, a little bit. Like just from that Sandy show, just like sitting in the backyard, just like, Chick. yep. How you doing, boy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except for he had no gun. He probably just had like a glass of whiskey and his fists were ready to fucking pound his son. I feel like his dad because was dramatic enough that he, he like brought a chair out there and like a lamp and stood it next to him just so he could like turn the lamp on when he walked by. Like, shining up his face. Just like, <laughs> like, did you bring that outside? 
okay. <laughs> Dude, I don't think uh, young Charles Jr. was in the mood to notice anything. He was stupid drunk. And before he could even open his mouth to give some excuse or apologize or whatever, he was met with his father's fist, square in the jaw. And his father kept punching him until Char- Charles was down on all fours. But his father wasn't done. He continued to kick Charles in the ribs until his body flipped into the pool. I don't know if it was the force of the kicks or him just looking for any reprieve from the beating. Um, but not to mention he was extremely wasted at this time as well. Mm-hmm. So, But regardless, Charles sank to the bottom of the pool and laid there as his father quietly walked inside, literally leaving his son to live or die. Yeah, pull um, yourself up. Yeah, and by some miracle, Charles was able to pull himself out of the pool and ended up collapsing on the cold concrete outside, and that's where he slept for the night. Gosh. But just the fact that his dad left him in there, like you, you kick your drunk, now just disoriented, beaten son into a pool. He sinks to the bottom, and you just walk away. Mm-hmm. Like, I know you're mad, but oh my God, dude, I can't even, I can't fathom that. That's like a, that's attempted I, murder. I can't fathom that. That is beyond that. Yeah, like I said, that is attempted murder. You you beat him into into where he almost could not function. Yeah, you kicked him to a pool. Yeah, that's attempted murder, right? At, but despite these beatings, despite the motorcycle crashes, and God knows what else happened to young Charles' brain, he was still pretty damn smart. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at least in terms of IQ, his IQ was one thirty nine. Um, and you know, for whatever that's worth, uh, there's a lot of debates around IQ tests nowadays. And like, obviously there's lots of ways to measure someone's intelligence, but you know, according to this broad spectrum, and if you're unfamiliar with IT, uh, IQ scores and what they mean, you know, the average is around a hundred. That's just your, your median, your mean right there, hundred scores above 130, like his are labeled as above average or very superior. Those are very, those are two completely different adjectives above average, above average or, or very superior that's a huge jump i feel like above average maybe should be like 130 to 140 yeah and then very superior maybe 150 and above yeah it's a little bit or, different right uh gauge there yeah exactly um while scores under 70 would be considered below average or labeled as borderline impaired and like i said most people's um iq some falls somewhere between 85 and 115 I think I heard that his, when they actually tested his IQ, it was at a pretty young age, too. Yeah. Like it, it was before he was even 18 years old. Like, he was like a young teen or something like that. And they were like, oh, you're actually really, yeah, it's pretty yeah. smart for your age, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He was. He was a bright kid. Um, and it, But it didn't take a genius to know that he needed to get far, far away from his father. And just days after his 18th birthday, young Charles enlisted in the United States Marines. Hoo-wah! In July of 1959. But surprisingly, Daddy was not happy about this. Really? You think he that would have been like a... Not, I, that's what I thought. Oh, that's shocking. But because, just because his father oper- operated like ex-military, he was not. I don't, hmm. I don't believe. I didn't find anything about him. I didn't hear about his Maybe father Maybe he did a four-year stint, you know, or something like that, but I don't think so. I don't, I don't remember mm-hmm. hearing either. He was a successful businessman, and he did have a lot of political ties, um, which we're going to talk about. Because his dad tried to use those political ties to phone, quote, some branch of the federal government... And through some political contacts of his, was actually able to reach the Marine's office. And he begged to have his son's enlistment canceled, but his request was canceled. <laughs> Denied! <laughs> because young Charles was an adult, and, you know, even daddy can't save you from Uncle Sam. I'm sorry that you're daddy's special boy, but... That's... Mm-mm. I mean, also, Charles Jr. didn't want to be saved from the Marines. 
Exactly. You so, can't make so an he adult was questioned. They were like, well, you know, your dad doesn't want you to enlist. He's calling. He's doing this and that. And he's like, well, I don't care. I want to go to the Marines. My dad sucks. Yeah. It's like, is, you you, know? my, da- is my dad your boss? Right. So can I go and, with you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you have to, you have to ask yourself, like, what is the father's motive here? It's like, did he just want to keep Charles Jr. under his wing? Or, you know, maybe he didn't want his son turning into a killing machine and taking revenge. Yeah, let's him. not give him any more proper training. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just want to teach him how to hunt squirrels. Let's not teach him how to hunt people. Either way, it must be a selfish endeavor. I oh, mean, absolutely. this is what his, this is basically, seemingly, what you were raising your son for. Right. And then he decides he wants to do this, and then you're like, no, you can't go to the Marines. It's, it seems weird. It no, really we are, does. We are an army household. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But regardless, uh, Charles's military career started out pretty well. He f- actually flourished in the military. It actually felt quite normal considering his father's impossible living standards, which he grew up with. And of course, with his hunting experience, he easily qualified as a sharpshooter. Yeah, this guy's been in ROTC since birth. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. So yeah, he pretty walked much. in just like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> you want to see that? No, I got what's, it. What's the expert <laughs> sniper test? Go ahead. And, uh, I'm going to go ahead and take that. That'd be yeah. great. He just walks in, tells the drill sergeant what to do. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, um, actually, we do it. <laughs> at my house, we do it this actually, way. You need to steady your breath, sir. <laughs> yeah, he's telling the drill sergeant, so, actually, your cuffs should be this tight. <laughs> According to what my dad says, right. you really need to tighten those cuffs. <laughs> yeah, you look really sloppy. Um, but in September of 1961, he received a prestigious scholarship to the University of Texas in Austin where he studied architectural engineering, of all things, but his main reason was so he could quickly make the rank of officer. Um, He's smart yeah, guy, that was so, his yeah. whole point, was, you know, he, he had the qualifications to be an officer other than either education and or time in the military, right? You have to have one or the other. You can't just become an officer. Yeah, unless you're, so, unless you're going to, like, West Point and graduating through Exactly, that. and that's yeah. what I'm saying. That's, that would count as education and experience yeah. at the same time. But um, so yeah, basically that's why he's going to the university at this point. But he got a little sidetracked, as we all tend to do, right? Yeah, college. <laughs> it's it's college. Uh, while there, he met a girl by the name of Kathy Leisner, a fellow student. And after just six months of dating, they married in the summer of 1962. No, when I first saw he, her name, every time I thought it was Lesnar, and I just kept thinking Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar. It might be Lesnar, but I think it's I think it is Lesnar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at the time he wasn't even really interested, not, I mean, he was interested in girls, but he wasn't looking to date anyone. And the way the book tells it is when he saw Kathy, he just, that, he was like, that's everything I want in a woman. Yeah. And now I want her. And you know, oh, that's how like it happens. Now? <laughs> yeah. I can focus my attention oh, on other that's things not now? here? <laughs> exactly. Oh, girl's pretty. Right. But it, it was also at this time though, if Charles ever had a chance at a normal life, this was it. This was the spot, but he fucked it up. Mr. Perfect fucked it up for the first time in his life. And in 1963, the college withdrew his scholarship following a quote unquote prank, or at least that's how he described it. Tell me about this Um, prank, Michael. Yeah, let me tell you. Let me think if, let me see if you think it's funny, Andy. Let's hear this prank Sinatra. As a joke, (laughs) he claims uh, that he shot a deer, drug it back to his dorm and skinned it and processed it in his dorm bathroom. I mean, what's the big deal? It's hilarious. This is a... a hilarious. A, a pr- where is the punchline? <laughs> well, 
that's what I'm trying to figure there out. Is, it's like everybody's just kind of waiting and waiting yeah. and waiting. And uh-huh. now we just have jerky. Where was the punchline? <laughs> right. That's it, dude. And I mean, I'm guessing they had public bathrooms too, like most dorms. Yeah, right? I'm guessing. You know, he didn't especially have his own. in the 60s. Yeah, he's not having a private bathroom in his no, dorm. No, no. Even so, that might be worse. Right? People yeah. come over and your bathroom's just covered in blood. Just I'm just surprised you were blood. able to get it into the dorm. Yeah. Like, you had to bring that thing back at a weird hour for no one to be like, I don't think that's yeah. campus appropriate. Right? <laughs> like, and also, I think this was just the way he tried to explain it away. You know what I mean? Like, he knew that this shit wasn't legal. He knew he couldn't do this type of thing yeah. at college. He was just like, oh, it was it was a joke. Yeah. It was ha, a joke. Ha, ha. He's like, right? they, all, they walked in, he's covered in blood, like... Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> April Fools in Got November. You guys, <laughs> uh, hunting season fools. Um, but yeah, so I don't understand how that's a prank. But and, and no one else did either because no one found it funny. And shit like that combined with his less than stellar grades basically got his ass sent right on back to active military duty. So he was technically still active military while he's at the college. Yes. But now he has to go back to his normal duties is yeah, what I'm getting at. he doesn't get to class anymore. That's right. Instead, he was sent to North Carolina. <gasps> oh! One of our many military bases here in North Carolina. Pick Camp one. Lejeune, for instance, is uh, where he did his stay while his wife, Kathy, was left waiting in Texas. I think I was trying to do... Oh, no, I've been to Fort Bragg. That's the one I've been to. Fort Bragg, I, yeah, okay. I've been yeah, out there yeah. to Fort Bragg before, but never Camp Lejeune. Right. So, you know, I mean, in this situation, this is not good on a young couple, right? They just got married. They're working through things. Um, you know, Kathy is working through her degree as well as a part-time job. I think uh, Charles had a part-time job at the same time trying to go to school, and he just fucked it up with this one this one misjudgment, this prank. one prank. Yeah, prank. Right? And now he is, you know, how far is it to Texas? What, 12 hours? From here? Yeah, I think it's about 12, 16 hours so now he's that far, 12 to 16 hours, depending on what part of North Carolina, what part of Texas, um, away from his new wife. Yeah. And, you know, that's not going to make things better. Not 1960s. It, you're not texting back and forth. You're not no. calling it every once in a while. Yeah. No. This only made things worse. And, uh, for instance, in November of the same year, he was actually court-martialed for gambling with a member of his unit and also lending money for interest and possessing a personal firearm on base. He actually threatened another Marine that owed him 15 bucks by brandishing his 25 caliber pistol while demanding his money. Where's my money, man? Where's my money? 15 bucks, man. But Dude, it, t- times were tight. No, I heard I heard somebody else, they were talking about the, the interest thing. It was like he loaned a friend like 30 bucks. Yeah. And then like shortly after, he was like, you going to pay me back? And he was like, yeah, how much do I owe you? He's like, uh, 45. 45. He's like, yeah. $15? It's been three days. Right, right. He's like, interest. <laughs> yeah. and they were, they, He's a bitch. That's just like the most his, shady shit his, to do. Uh, his father was a businessman, right? His father was a businessman. But naturally, this Marine that he threatened, this other one, turned him in. And Charles didn't really try to hide or deny anything, really. During the investigation, he was found with a 25 caliber pistol and two rounds of 7.62 millimeter ammunition, which is standard for an M14 rifle. I don't know what you're going to do with two rounds. But still, you can't have it. And, uh... In court, he pleaded guilty to all charges except the charge of threatening another Marine. He just adamantly <laughs> denied that. Um, he, where he, that was the threat where he flashed the pistol and apparently threatened bodily harm as well. But regardless of him denying that, he was still found guilty of all charges. 
So I think I do understand the the ammo thing, why you can't have that. It's mm -hmm. I, and I, I could be wrong, but I think it's because on bases, when you go and check out a weapon, right. you don't get ammo from the same thing. You have to go to another place to check out your ammo for it. Okay. So I think that maybe it's like he, if he had a spare round, if he checked out a weapon, then he could fire that weapon without ever reporting that he got ammo for it. I think okay. that's the thing I, I, I gathered from that. It's like if you have to get your ammo from another department. And okay. So if you have your own ammo, you could easily get a gun, shoot it, and no one would know where you got the bullet. Makes sense. So I think that's where they were going with that. Makes sense. Okay. Well, for punishment, he was sentenced to 30 days confinement and whatever that means. I mean, I guess that's in jail. In the hole, maybe? On the base. Solita solitary, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's, they have a holding cell on base in Camp June. I'm sure they do. It's just a waiting room. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and then he had 90 days of hard labor after that. And he was busted back down to private again because he had been a uh, Lance Corporal. Mm. So, And in December of 64, he was honorably discharged and returned home to his faithful wife, Kathy. And he went back to the University of Texas and Austin and everything. Uh, he chose to study mechanical engineering, but he struggled to maintain a B. It was, it was tough for him. I did and see somebody say that. I think the, my favorite term was he was moderately intelligent. It was like moderately intelligent and moderately popular. I think he was the type of person who, when everything was going well and he was succeeding, there was nobody better. But one one gut punch, and, and just he, comes... he his confidence is you know it's built on sticks. Okay, you know what I'm saying. I, I feel like that. You take one out, just a house of cards. The whole the whole the whole house falls, man. Um, and also, upon his return, Kathy had already graduated and was now teaching at Lanier High School in Austin full-time and holding down a side job to help support the young couple's finances during that time, um, including bearing the costs of Charles' tuition because, you know, the military wasn't footing the bill anymore. Exactly, yeah. He's not part of the military anymore. And this just, this irked Charles to note to every degree, because he, he hated this. He felt worthless. He felt like he was, you know, he was the exact opposite of what his father raised him to be. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He's completely relying on his wife. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but in 1961, raised the way he was, you could see how this could exactly, this could irritate yeah. him. You know? Now, was the military, they, he did get a, a paycheck from the military at this time, correct? He's still in active duty? No, he was. This is after this is he's after, discharged. Okay, so this is after the discharge. Honorable so yeah, he, discharge. So he doesn't he's done. have any. He doesn't have any source of income at this point. Correct? None. Okay. None. Um, not until at this. Not until a short bit later, where he does start working as a bill collector for a finance company, and then he took on a second job as a bank teller in Austin National Bank. Yeah, he wasn't going to just let her do everything. He just too prideful. But, but what the irony of it is, though, when he also takes on two jobs, it's like, well, now you never see each other. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like now you're putting all the stress on your relationship, whereas before, you know, it was just on your, your conscience or your self-esteem or whatever it was. Now you're literally spending more time apart. But I mean, they just got through a long distance relationship. So he, maybe he may have been more used to being apart. Yeah, so it's yeah. like, that's kind of what they were comfortable with at this point. That's true. Could be. Right. And of course, you know, working at the bank and the finance company, it wasn't the work that he wanted, but it did make him feel like he was pulling his weight and that things were decent. And I say decent because even though Charles had been given yet another chance at education and an amazingly supportive wife, he couldn't help but start to notice flashes of his father's anger in himself, eventually manifesting itself when Charles hit Kathy for the very first time. Just one of many dominoes to fall around this time period in Charlie's life. The second 
big domino here was the divorce of his parents. Oh, that don't that only took what twenty years? Yeah. After watching his father just beat the shit out of yeah. him first. It's like, how long is she supposed to take it? But she had no out. Now, Charles and his wife are at a point, at least apparently they were, that they could help her financially and move her away from him. So okay. maybe that's what she was waiting for. She was waiting for one of her boys to get to the point where they could take care of her and she wouldn't be completely alone. Because, I mean, you're talking about a woman who's, who's never, she's been a homemaker her whole life. And she's also been beaten uh, she, and she off, has, like, openly right. for the past 20-something years. Exactly. So she couldn't get a job. She couldn't get any hobbies. Like, she had to make sure that everything around the house was done to a T, or she was beat. I mean, simple as that. She probably wanted one of her sons to protect her. Yeah. So especially yeah, the eldest, too. you know, being, exactly. being Charles. Exactly. And in 1966, Charles' mother announced that she was officially leaving his father. So he drove to Florida, loaded up his mother, and brought her back to Austin. He had her set up with an apartment and a job as a cafeteria worker, like, damn near immediately. That's pretty good. Like, yeah. to just, all right, come on, I got you. I yeah. got you ready to go. Yeah. And lucky for the whole family, uh, old dad, he stayed in Florida because he had a plumbing company to run. So, you know, he got his priorities in line. Uh, but Charles Sr., he wasn't out of their lives because he called several times a week asking Charles Jr. to convince his mother to come back and give their marriage another try. Here's a quote from Charles Sr. <laughs> this is you want, you want to read it? I, absolutely. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Give me something to do. Be Charles Sr. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I spent $1,000 a month on the phone bill begging her to come back. I loved my wife dearly and my mm-hmm. sons dearly. I wanted our home to be a happy one. I kept begging Charlie to come back to me. I promised him that if he'd only persuade his mama to come back, I swear to never lay another hand on her again. Yeah, right, man. And luckily, Charlie refused um, because that is obviously bullshit. Um, I mean, yeah. if you've hit her for 26 years, buddy, you are going to keep hitting her. And you openly right. just say, oh, it's because I have a bit of a temper. Yeah, well, you're going to get mad again. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm sorry. Did you just fix that? I, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So that same year, though, uh, Charles started a daily journal where he wrote openly and honestly about his depression, his violence toward his wife, and how he dreaded turning into his father. Mm-hmm. Not knowing where to turn with these dark thoughts swimming around in his head, he met with the university's doctor, who basically just prescribed him Valium, and gave him a referral to the campus psychiatrist, Maurice Dean Hurley. It was a pretty common now, thing back then, just like, oh, the, here's a Valium. It's the it 1960s. Yeah. Mental health, what the fuck is that? Yeah, take this pill, chill the fuck out. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're just stressed out. This will bring your, your vitals down. Yeah, you're take good. 12, I don't care. Yeah, whatever. Drink, drink some whiskey. Stop and get you some Jack Daniels you on the way home. now? Here you go. Yeah, I, <laughs> I actually prescribe it with whiskey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you have, to, you have to remember, Charles was raised thinking that if you needed a shrink, it was a sign of weakness. But eventually he did meet with Dr. Hurley on March 29, 1966, and spent the hour talking about his parents' divorce, his increasing stress at work and school, and his mounting financial debt. Now, an interesting takeaway from the meeting, at one point he said that he had an urge to, quote, start shooting people with a deer rifle from the university tower, end quote. That is, that's damn specific. Are you a, are you a medium? Can you see that into the future? That is damn specific. I mean, and now as, as crazy as that statement seems, yeah. in hindsight, obviously, in the moment, Dr. Hurley really had no reason to panic because, in all honesty, students came to him all the time talking about throwing themselves from the tower, shooting from the tower, or, or you know, at least that's the way the Ryan Cream book made it sound, and I don't know why you would lie about that. And also, 
the tower is a fixation point of the campus. It is like, like the center point. It's the center point. It's their pride and joy. They built it like that for a reason. They, you know, it's it's baffling. And at the time in the '60s, anyone could go up there for any reason. You could go up there and read a book if you want to. You just Weird. go hang out all day, whatever you want to do. Exactly. There's the, the rules back then were amazing. They, <laughs> what rules? Exactly. <laughs> but then you have issues like this. Um. So yeah, the tower. The tower was a fixation point, and I'm sure it still is. I, I, yeah. Until after now. This now definitely. Um. The security is much different. We'll talk about that too. Um, oh, you either, mean there is security now? There's a shit ton of it. <laughs> <laughs> the security is different. Is there is some now? Right, right. But either way, after that initial visit, Charlie never came back. Um, though, though Doctor Hurley did urge him to. In his notes, he described Whitman as oozing with hostility. That's a great note to have in the sides. Oozing Man, with hostility. Is. He is hostile. Oozing with hostility. Oozing with it. Um, yeah, but Charles apparently wasn't very impressed with his meeting with Hurley because in his suicide note, he said it was, quote, to no avail. He wanted someone to that's, fix it the first time. That's right. I, I can't be fixed in an hour. Pfft, I'm a, he's like fucking Tony Soprano. I'm not getting any better, huh? It's your fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he showed up thinking probably the same thing. Oh, yeah. you're going to give me a pill that makes all this go away, yep. and then I'm going to be better. Because the first doctor, like I said, just gave him Valium, and you were like, yep. die, just get the fuck out of here. Now he's going to an actual shrink and hoping that they're just like, oh, yeah, this is the pill you need this time. Yeah, yeah. And also around this time, he met someone from his past. Um, now, whether this person found him at this very troublesome time in his life, or maybe he reached out. I tend to think he reached out. Because this is his childhood priest and Boy Scout leader. Seriously, I can't make that shit up. Okay. I'm not going to touch it. We're, we, we, yeah, thankfully, you're not. We're hard on Catholics, so uh, <laughs> apparently. So we're going we're gonna to take it easy. Um, but Father LeDuc came to visit Charles, and Charles confessed that he had lost his faith and no longer considered himself Catholic at all. Hmm. And that was basically Charles' last public cry for help before he decided that there was no other option than to act out his horrific fantasy. Now, before we get into the attack, something just occurred to me. You know, maybe Father LeDuc did just show up at that time. Because why would Charlie, why would Charles call him out of the blue and then say, oh, by the way, I'm not Catholic anymore. I lost my faith. Or maybe he would, maybe it, it is a reaching out. It's like, save yeah. me. Do you have anything to say about my, you know, do you have anything to say that can bring me back, mm -hmm. that can restore my faith in, in humanity and in God? Myself, Because my if not, state, yeah, because yeah, if not, I, I don't believe anymore. I'm not even a Catholic. Because he's he's already gone to the doctor now and he thinks that's to no avail. Yeah. So now he's reaching out to the, the old source of his comfort, which was his mother's Roman Catholic religion. Right. Which is what he was raised in and he's Very hoping true. for one last, this is my last resort. Yes. I'm call my old priest who I was, you know, I, he was an altar boy back in the day. He was a boy scout with this guy. This guy was yeah. a big influence in his life. Maybe like, we don't know the whole, their whole relationship, but yeah, it probably was like, I'm just, this is the, the closest thing to a father figure I have. Yeah. Who's not my abusive father. And like I said, this, this man was involved in boy scouts as well as, you know, in the local church. So Charles spent a lot of time with him. Yeah. Him, him and his brothers were altar boys at the, at that yeah. church. So yeah, absolutely. It, All does, right. it does make sense for just him to kind of reach out one last time. It does. It does. Well, that's all he could do, I guess. And uh, I guess now we have to get into the attack. So listener discretion is advised. At this point, guys, there is violence, um, a lot of it. And uh, I do have some some scenes, some descriptive scenes of murders, some certain killings. So just be aware there is also 
um, a child in the womb who was killed in this story. Mm-hmm. This it's is insane. random violence on anybody he could see. So. Pretty much, pretty much. So the day before the attack, Charles went to a local hardware store and purchased binoculars and a knife. He then picked up his wife from her summer job and the pair went to a matinee movie. After that, they met Charles' mother for lunch at her job. I always thought the, fr- the first purchase he made was kind of strange. Because it felt like those were things he would already have. As a former Marine, as mm-hmm. a former, former who's been through military training and kind of grew up in Texas and stuff, it's like um, you don't have, he doesn't own his, maybe his they knife were, or Maybe anything. they were government issued and he had to return them. That's what I was thinking. It's just It seemed it like those things simple. were things that he would already have. An he's outdoorsman, the, Yeah, he's too, already got the right? gun. He's already a hunter. Like, yeah. It's like, did you just want new ones? Like, just to make sure that, like, I don't know. It was just a weird thing to go, oh, I'm going to go buy new ones. Yeah, maybe he just wanted, uh, you know, a nice sharp knife. Didn't want to. He didn't want to waste time. He didn't have time really to sharpen anything. True. And then maybe you know, maybe he, he didn't have any good binoculars. Who, who knows? But either way, um, later that evening they visited with friends for dinner. And after leaving, Kathy headed to her second job where she worked from six to ten p.m. Now, once back home alone, Charles sat at his typewriter and started writing his suicide note. Andy, you want to read this snippet from the suicide note here? Sure thing, Michael. I do. I don't quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, intelligent young man. However, lately, I have been the victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. And then this other segment, this other little bit here. I intend to kill Kathy. I love her very much. And I intend to kill my wife after I pick her up from work. I don't want her to face the embarrassment that my actions will surely cause, and I am prepared to die. Strange. It's so. It's so matter of fact. It is. It's. I, I intend know, to I, kill her. I intend to kill I love Kathy. Her. I intend to kill my wife, though. It's like I love her very much, but I intend to kill my wife when I pick her up after work. It's just like the the little specific things that he puts in there just makes it the it's so nonchalant, and mm-hmm. that's just. Like I said, we'll talk more about his his mental state later. So basically, he drove into town, picked up Kathy at the telephone office where she worked. He took her home, dropped her off, and then headed back out for a quick visit to his mother's. So his mother is victim number one. When Charles entered his mother's apartment, she was in her room getting ready for bed. Charles approached her, and before she could speak, he had already swung his fist, actually just missing his mother as she ducked out of the way. Remember, this woman has spent a lifetime dodging punches. Oh, okay? yeah, she just, she just what, 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 right. what, what, what? <laughs> But unfortunately, she was not quite fast enough, and the next, hard right, the next hard right hook struck Margaret and sent her crashing to the floor. Then, with another quick blow, Charles plants a knife in his mother's chest. And as she lay on the floor gasping for air, he takes out his twenty-five caliber pistol and shoots her in the back of the head to end her suffering. I, that's that's something new. I didn't actually. Um, the the information I heard didn't actually say that he shot his his mother. He did. Said that he had just stabbed her in the heart and then laid her in bed. It kind of no, left. He out did the that gunshot. to his wife. Yeah, it just left out the gunshot to his mother. Because hmm. no, it said for his wife as well, but it, for his for his mother, it just said one knife to the heart and then laid her in bed. It's weird that the research I found didn't hmm. have that. No, because um, even in the the police report um, that the police filed the following day, they noted that she had been stabbed through the heart and shot in the back of the head. Yeah, he 
um, sure. reports also said that she had defensive wounds to her left hand, which is very typical when you're being attacked by someone right-handed. Yeah. So, um, and then Charles took the time to write a letter by hand while at his mother's house and left it for the police. To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I am very upset over having done it. However, I feel there is a heaven. She is definitely there now. If there is a heaven, she is definitely there now. I truly am sorry. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I loved this woman with all my heart. Yeah, it's... It doesn't make... It's it's a weird thing. It's hard to wrap your head around. It really is, dude. And it's also weird that he chose to write about these two murders, and he says nothing about his attack at the university. The only thing he it's says... It's like he's yeah. completely disconnected from those attacks. The only other thing he mentions is... Because of my actions. But he doesn't say what he's going to do. He just says, because of my actions, my following actions. There's nothing specific at all. It's like maybe he didn't want somebody to find this note before he got up there. or I don't know. Yeah, he doesn't ever actually give what he's going to do. No, he doesn't. But after writing this note, he returns home to his wife, Kathy. And that is where she was laying in bed. She was sleeping. He literally came up to her and plunged a knife directly into her heart. Some reports say up to five times um, as she was sleeping. She never even opened her eyes. And that was his intention. He wanted to kill her as soon as possible. As quickly, As quickly, as painless as possible. Like I said, her eyes didn't even open. And he wrapped her body up in sheets to preserve her dignity for the police to find because a lot of reports said that she was sleeping in the nude. Mm -hmm. So he wrapped her body up in sheets, laid her back in bed, and then added a handwritten portion to the note that he had typed up earlier. Yeah, because if somebody said he hadn't, he didn't finish what he had been typing, so he just like kind of right. just pulled it off and kept writing instead of just typing it. But yeah, this is the handwritten part. I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick and thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts. Donate the rest anonymously to the Mental Health Foundation. Maybe the research can prevent further tragedies of this type. That is so matter-of-factly just to include, like, if my insurance policy covers this, like, dude, you just killed two women, and you're putting this in like it's a bureaucratic, like, complaint letter. Oh, if my insurance policy, does does this cover this? That's where his logical mind is at this time. Does this cover homicide by me? Yeah, and at the the bottom of the letter, in in a weird one-liner, he writes, wife and mother, both dead. Almost like he's saying it to himself. Yeah, almost it's like, like almost he, like a checklist. Yeah, yes, it like is. He's checking off the first thing he needed to do. Yes. He also left notes to each of his brothers and his father, where he gave instructions regarding two canisters of film that he left on the table to be developed, and that his puppy should be given to Kathy's parents. Thanks for um, sparing the dog. I guess. Yeah. He didn't even like the dog either. Yeah, that's he, yeah. he couldn't stand the dog. But he apparently he did it because he he knew his wife loved the dog and he and her parents yeah. would love it. Yeah. Well, her parents also loved her. Yeah. You so. fucking asshole. A lot more than the dog. What's up, creepers? It's Andy here, and helping you try to banish those end of summer blues with HelloFresh. No need to stress about how you'll handle it all this fall because HelloFresh takes care of the meal planning, delivers pre-portioned ingredients right to your home. So whipping up a homemade meal is a piece of the cake. And if you got families as big as ours, sometimes they're hungry all the damn time. You know what you can do? You can add snacks, you can add sides, or more things to your weekly HelloFresh order 
Just simply shop HelloFresh Market and take your pick from a curated selection of over a hundred add-on items. Still not enough. We need more! Everyone likes getting a fresh package at the door, but everyone likes it better when that package gets to fill that belly. Recently at our house, we got to open up a fresh box with the mushroom and herb shepherd's pie, taking us back to the old country and filling our bellies for a fortnight with some nice juicy potatoes and button mushrooms, nice topped with sour cream and carrots. Oh, I can smell it again already. So if new, simple, and tasty sounds great to you, go to hellofresh.com slash 50creeper. And use code 50CREEPER for 50% off plus free shipping. Again, that is HelloFresh.com slash 50CREEPER. And use code 50CREEPER for 50% off plus free shipping. Like we got some nice spaghetti and herb Italian beef with ragu tonight. It's going to be so tasty. Join us next time. Um, he, also, he also thought ahead for the next day to buy himself some more time. He called Kathy's job to inform her supervisor that Kathy would be staying home sick the following day, and he made the exact same call to his mother's employer a few hours later. Mm. And the next morning, on July 31st, 1966, it was that dreadful morning. It was hot, with a high of 98 degrees in Austin, Texas. Damn! They sweating like a mofo out there. That's, that's one of those things It's very hard to kind of prove the insanity thing when you're making these calls ahead to try and cover your tracks to yes. make sure you get more time. It's Yeah, he's not insane. He just doesn't know why he's taking these actions. Yeah, it's like it's, it's, a, it's that's weird. one of the things they have consistently tried to study because it's, yeah, it's not insanity. It's just a, it's a, a man who broke. Yeah, yes. And around 9.15 in the morning, Charles rented a dolly and cashed a check for $250. With cash in hand, he headed back to the local hardware store that he had stopped at earlier and bought an M1 carbine rifle, claiming he was using the gun to shoot some pigs. And this this wasn't alarming to the Texas gun store owner. Um, for one, it's Texas. And as many Austin hunters... Many Austin area hunters, they like to hunt wild pigs, and it was encouraged even. Exactly. Like most places, yeah, wild hogs are a nuisance. And so, you know, the hunting of wild hogs is encouraged. Yeah, so if somebody comes in, yeah, and if somebody comes in like, oh, I'm going to hunt wild hogs, then that that hardware store guy's trying to, you know, set him up with whatever he needs. Yeah. You know what? You need some night vision goggles. You don't get this. This is a hollow point. It's going to blow that son (laughs) of a bitch's head right off. Why don't you? Why don't you bring you back some right. bacon, all right? Why don't you... Yeah, right. they, they do not fuck around with wild hogs. Right. I recommend a ghillie suit and maybe some hog urine. You know what? I recommend uh, an RPG. <laughs> right. We have a tank out back. Seriously. But after uh, Charles left the hardware store, then he stopped at Sears. Because where else do you buy shit than Sears and Roebuck in the 60s, right? Yeah. I swear to God, my grandparents, they say everything was was purchased at Sears and Roebuck. Oh yeah, those I remember when those were in Sears and Roebuck. It was the catalog. Yeah, the catalog. The the Sears catalog, and Roebuck's right? catalog. Yeah, man, yeah, that was the Amazon mailing list of the day. <laughs> it was. It was. And he but at Sears and Roebuck, he purchased a 12 gauge shotgun and a rifle case. Um, Whitman immediately began saw- not at the store, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Start just but Whitman the began sawing the stock off the shotgun, <laughs> then loaded it and the M1 into a bag that also contained his Remington 700 bolt action hunting rifle, a six millimeter Remington rifle, three pistols, several knives, steel rebar, a can of gasoline, over 500 rounds of ammunition, and other various equipment that he thought he might need. And fun important fact here: all his guns were legally owned. By the way. 
except for the sawed-off shotgun. And the shotgun was legally owned. He just did an illegal modification. Yeah. This was the other thing I was worried. I was I was questioning. It's like in his bag that he brought up there, he had several knives. Yeah. It's like, why did he go to the store and buy a new knife and new binoculars only to go and then use that Dude, knife he was to kill prepared. them? It's, just, it's so strange to me that he had everything he needed, but he still was like, I got to go buy this so I can kill them with a new knife. Like, I, don't Dude, I think he was just prepared for a long standoff. He really thought that he was going to be up there so long that he was going to run out of ammo and he was going to have to start, you know, guerrilla warfare and these motherfuckers that were coming up one at a time. And he was prepared to do that, I think. He was totally prepared to do that, mm-hmm. which we'll find out. He sees this plan through. That is one thing you can say, I guess. And now it's time to put this said plan into action. So he used the dolly he rented to haul the equipment to the top of the tower. And dressed as a maintenance worker, he slipped right by the smiling receptionist on the lower level. Then once 30 floors up, at the top of the stairs to the observation deck, there was another receptionist named Edna Townsley. She was 51 years old. Charles walks up to her and knocks her unconscious with the butt of a rifle and then immediately restrained her, dragging her behind a couch to conceal her body. Then he shot her in the head and left her to die, which would end up taking two hours. And again, none the whole of that the whole sense. rampage happens and everything before she dies. Mm-hmm. None of like I said, these, the the steps he's taking now they just don't make sense. Like if you're going to knock her out, tie her up, gag her, drag her somewhere else, and then shoot her. It's yeah. it's like it's it's what I did think, his brain go through? It's like did he, did did she like wake well, up or something and he's like just freaked out and shot her? Right. Because that's what that's the only thing I could think. It's like if you it looks like he went through the the stages to not kill this woman. Right. And then he still kills her. I think okay. I think he was thinking as logical as possible because I think he was needing to barricade a door, right? He has to kill this person anyways, in his mind. So he's going to kill her and then use her body as another Weight Obstacle. in front of the door, right? And if you shoot her where she's at, now you have to drag dead weight. Mm-hmm. You bump her with the butt of a rifle and tell her to get over there. But he did. You see what I'm saying? But the thing, he he knocked her unconscious, restrained her, and then drug her over there. Yeah. So it's like true. I, that's why I'm wondering. It's like I think maybe it feels to me like he wasn't going to kill this woman, and that possibly she woke back up when he was dragging her. Yeah. And then maybe he shot her. Yes, because it, like, it just seems like he. This is the only person that he actually went through a few steps to not murder. Right, and it just didn't. It didn't make any sense. Also, with just him showing up as a maintenance worker, I questioned that at first, and then I realized this is the '60s. He just had a tool belt on. That's all. That's all you needed. Right. There's so, no jumpsuit. There's no name. It's just tool belt. Uh, just tool belt. That's all you needed. That's back all then. you needed. Yep. And look decent, which yeah, he, he had, did. He had duffel bag. Yeah, dolly and a tool belt. Yeah, and he looked completely trustworthy. You know, for the time, clean cut. You know, clean shaven, whatnot. But, like I said, now that he was alone at the top, he needed to barricade himself in. Um, But just then, the elevators opened, and two tourist families came up the stairs. Man, talk about wrong place, wrong time, dude. Mm -hmm. The Gabor family and the Lamports were both headed up to check out the view when they encountered Whitman. Charlie smiled and nodded, and then opened fire on the group, killing 15-year-old Mark Gabor and his 45-year-old aunt, uh, Marguerite Lamport. So these two families knew each other. Um, He continued to fire as the families fled back down the stairs. The two, mentioned before, were killed instantly, and two more of the group were left permanently disabled from their wounds. Hmm. But now that he was alone at last, 
Charles barricaded the door and set up camp as he took aim at the campus below. I had a question about those first, the first people he did shoot up mm-hmm. there. I'll try two to answer the, it. Two of them were killed instantly and the, and the others were injured. Did they make it back down or were they like stuck on the stairs? They made it down as far as they could. Okay. They were on some type of landing, um, but I think what they eventually figured out is the surviving family members thought it better to just stay with their injured family members instead mm-hmm. of going out because think then about it he has a 360 degree you yep. can't run out the bottom of the tower all he can look right down exactly yep. so at least by going down the tower a couple floors you know he's above you you know where he's at and he can't see you yeah or you know him. where he's going to come if he has to come down exactly yeah. so they they set up camp somewhere in the tower it may have been in the lobby it may have been the bottom floor i'm not sure yeah, I, just, I was I was confused about that whether or not they actually made it all the way down or not. But, but then, yeah. mo- but also most of the family members between those two were injured in some way. Yeah, very. Exactly. There may have been one or two who weren't injured at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, but now that he's up in the tower, like I said, he's taking aim at the campus below, and the first shot rang out at approximately eleven forty eight a.m. The chime of the high noon bell just above his head helped confuse people and hide the shots as they conveniently rang out. Oh, that's li- he literally timed it. He timed that. it. Yeah. He timed it with the yeah, with, with the, the clock. Chimes. And the first call to 911 came in at 11:52 a.m. by a history professor after he witnessed several students who had been shot in the South Mall Gathering Center. I guess this is a certain area of campus um, and this area is is very exposed. If you're in this South the South Mall area of it, then you're basically in a giant open courtyard. And a lot of victims yeah, fish were barrel, killed so there, pretty much, pretty much. There was nowhere yeah, to hide. Hard expression, but that's literally what it was for them at that point, when they're just in an open courtyard pretty with much. buildings on all the sides that they have to try and get into. Yes. So, yeah. One witness recalled watching as a victim that had been struck in the groin teetered off his bike and then ultimately crashed. This had been 17-year-old Alec Hernandez, who was delivering newspapers around campus. The witness was somewhat amused by it at first, thinking that Alec had just had an accident. But then he said people started falling, and he knew that this was no laughing matter. When everyone began to realize that it was rifle shots they heard, panic truly began to set in. Mm -hmm. And Whitman shot without discretion, targeting anyone and everyone he could. If they caught his attention, he fired at them. He didn't care about gender nor age. Any open open target he could see, that was open game. It was awful. Yep. And as I alluded to earlier, his youngest victim hadn't even been born yet. 18-year-old Claire Wilson was only eight months pregnant when a bullet ripped through her lower abdomen and shattered her child's skull. Claire somehow miraculously survived, but would end up being infertile for the rest of her life. Like, this this is insane. Obviously... I mean, I don't know if he was aiming for her stomach. I think he probably was. I mean, when you're when a woman is eight months pregnant, that's very apparent. Yeah. That is very apparent. I know people carry weight differently. People have different starting weights and whatnot. But I'm 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like up, man. there's a part of me that does think that's what he was aiming for. And there's a part of me that just it, it kind of hopes 
that, you know, he had never been up this high before shooting at targets, that maybe those bullets just dropped a little bit because, like, the first guy got shot in the groin. It's like maybe he was Dude, aiming no, for the chest. No, he's shooting for arteries. Well, it, but that guy's on a bike. So he's riding a bike, and yeah. it's like it seems like maybe you're shooting for the chest, and because he's moving, you missed a little bit. So I don't like, think he missed it all, dude. Because I, I don't, almost I, all his shots were in arteries. Even people he shot, he just shot at whatever he had a clean shot at. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that too. It's just like a part of me wants to kind of hope that maybe See, he just was he was trying to aim for the chest, and yeah. the bullet just dropped. Like, this is so. a this is a weird this is a weird thing to have to diagnose. Okay, but. Yeah. Um, Maybe, from a logical standpoint, the person on the bike, right, aiming at the seat of the bike is a lot easier because that doesn't change heights. It doesn't lean back and forth. While you're riding a bike, your body moves, your torso moves, your head moves, mm-hmm. but your your freaking pelvis does not. True. It stays in the same spot. So all he had to do was time it as far as shooting right ahead, right in front of this bike. So I think from a military standpoint, he's thinking, I got a much better chance Yep. at hitting a pelvis artery than I do anywhere else because this, this person's moving. Depending on, like I say, when you bike and you're really getting it, you're kind of moving back and forth a lot. Yeah, probably. Honestly. So, but, uh, yeah, Claire Wilson was shot in the stomach, like we said. Um, her, ba- her child, her unborn child was killed instantly, and she would be infertile for the rest of her life. Her friend, Thomas Ekman, who was walking beside her, had been accompanying her across the South Mall area that day. He was not so lucky. Um, after shooting Claire, Charles quickly turned his gun to Thomas and shot and killed him instantly. Um, I'm assuming that was a head wound. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't see anything else, but I mean, what else do you instantly die from? I mean, yeah. So most of the victims that day were killed with a 16mm Remington rifle with a four-power scope, which is a weapon and sight configuration that would allow even a moderate marksman to hit a target the size of a human head at 300 yards away. Yeah, that is a powerful scope right there that he is using. Very, very. So obviously, by this point, the police were fully aware of the situation and all active police officers in Austin were ordered to the campus. They were joined by highway patrolmen, Texas Rangers, and even Secret Service men from the Lyndon Johnson Austin office, believe yeah. it or not. I'll believe it at this yeah, point. because Dude, this is crazy. This is the first time they've ever encountered something like this. That's right. And there were even civilians who showed up with personal firearms to try and assist the police. I mean, this is Texas, after all. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't get it twisted. They're like, finally, the disaster I want to protect my town from. <laughs> yeah. You know? There's a lot of people who are just ready. <laughs> they were ready. Or at least they are now. And thank God they showed up, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the volunteers makes a huge difference. Um, the officer, who is... Credited with taking down Charles said in his book that he thinks the civil shooters should be credited as they increased the chance of Whitman being hit and caused him to take cover more often. So, yeah, exactly. and uh, they kept him pinned down. That's right. Exactly. And although Charles was moving often, utilizing narrow drainage ducts at gunpoints, it made him virtually impossible to hit from below. Now, the first officer on scene, 23 year old patrolman Billy Speed. When he got there, he took cover behind some stone columns, but not quick enough, apparently, as he was struck in the shoulder and ended up dying from his injuries. Um, And, you know, I mean, he's waiting for the police. That is his, he's thinking at this time, like, yeah, I'm sure he's enjoying himself, whatever, or whatever the fuck these psycho killers do when they're in this massacre. But when the police show up, he's like, okay, finally, someone worthy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He's like, this is where you begin to make your stand. It's, al- so it's when easier the first, to justify killing them. That's what I'm saying. So the first officer on the scene, especially arriving alone, you have no chance. He can see 360 degrees. 
miles you can't see him. out. He sees you coming into the campus. He's already moved in position, and when you get out of your car, he's gonna he's shooting you. I mean, exactly. Yeah, you had just no it. chance. That's a. I felt so bad too because that guy has such a, had such such a great cop name, Officer Billy, Billy Speed, Speed. Right. It's such a uh, such a great cop name. That's uh, he Officer sounds like Billy Speed. He sounds like a superhero. It sounds like a it sounds like a Keanu Reeves character. It's like a superhero's real name. Yeah, Billy Speed. Yeah, yeah it does. Right. But the police, they decided they'd try a different tactic. Um, so they tried to use a small airplane to take down Whitman. In the plane was a sharpshooter and police lieutenant, Marion Lee. They hoped to get a clear shot at him from the sky. But they quickly came under fire and were forced to retreat when Charles sunk four shots into the plane's fuselage almost immediately. Yeah, this isn't a, this, this isn't a military transport or something like that. It's just a I, local plane. Like That was so easy yeah. for him to hit. Like, yeah. Um, and one of the most difficult things about this attack was that it made it very difficult to even try to assist the injured. No one within the sight of the tower was safe. Morris, Morris Holman experienced this firsthand. He was the driver of an ambulance that had responded to the shootings. While attempting to help another victim in the South Mall area, like we talked about earlier, he was shot in the leg, the bullet striking his artery again. Luckily, Morse was rushed to the local ER in need of a blood transfusion, and maybe the only bright spot in the story, this is when people started hearing about the shooting, and they jumped into action, and not just with the guns. Yeah. Um, all the local blood banks had lines around the corner. But it, If I'm not mistaken, too, uh, you may get to this, too, but it's like you talk about having to try and help the injured. Mm -hmm. it's, he's using the injured to lure people out. He's trying Absolutely. to get more people out there, so he's, they know that he's... He, yeah. If anybody who's still alive out there, he's keeping an eye on them so that somebody because he knows someone else is going to come get them. It's terrifying, dude. It's an mm -hmm. absolutely terrifying experience. You're walking with a friend, you're walking with a loved one, they go down, and you literally don't have time to even get to safety yourself, much mm -hmm. less pull their body out of harm's way. Yep. Or or them out of harm's way if they're not dead. Yep. You know, like this paramedic, he lived. He Just lived. Like the, he was the, lucky. The, one, the pregnant woman, she survived. She was shot in the stomach right there on the South Yard, and yeah. her friend was shot and killed next to her. Yep. So then she's just laying there in mm -hmm. the open. So Yeah. I mean, and there were stories of some victims who did. They were smart. They thought on their feet, or laying down, rather, and they didn't move. They were shot. They were not killed, and they just laid there. Just played dead. They just played dead. It was... I mean, that's about the best thing you could do in this situation, honestly. It is. And a lot of those situations like that, in those yeah. active shooter situations, it is a, it's a strategy. Yep. Like it's, a, it's a way to survive. Absolutely. But, of course, with more community action, like the blood drives, comes more awareness. And with the rise in awareness comes increased pressure on the police to stop this bitch. So somebody was going to have to get their ass up the tower. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I mean, somebody's going up there, goddammit. I'm surprised I mean, Texas didn't just surround this tower with, like, guns and just be like, just take it out. Just take out the whole tower. <laughs> just take out the tower. <laughs> just take out. Just cut it off. Just, just, gunship. Just, just, yeah, right, just cut it right in half. But it was finally decided that four men were to head up to the observation deck and apprehend Charles by any means necessary. They made their way to the tower by zigzagging from cover to cover and using underground conduits that only the custodial staff knew about. That, that was really interesting because the officers were going around to like teaching staff, mm -hmm. um, people who worked, you know, in, in the cafeteria and all these different workers in the school, groundskeepers, and nobody knew anything except for the custodials. Yeah, janitor's like, I got to wait. Ask the janitor. They got a place where they go hide when they ain't got shit to do. Go ask them. There's a, there's a janitor's like... I don't want to show you this spot, but uh, 
I think I gotta show you this spot. I think I gotta show you this spot. <laughs> I think I gotta show you my spot. <laughs> right. uh, uh, take your shoes off before you come in. <laughs> Why don't you guys? Okay, before you guys come through, I gotta yeah. clean up a little bit and just uh -huh. like hide a bunch of weed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, all right now, you guys can come through. <laughs> exactly, but yeah, apparently these there were tunnels all over the campus. And they were dug in the 1920s uh, upon the creation of the college, mm -hmm. upon the construction of the college. So they're still there, and they've actually been redone, I think, in the 70s? In the 70s, I think they were kind of updated as far as structurally. And, of course, you know, they've probably been updated as far as electric yeah. electricity and whatnot now. Um, but anyway, the four lucky tributes were Officer Ramiro Martinez, Houston McCoy, Jerry Day, and one civilian, who they hastily deputized, named Alan Crum. Now, Crum was an employee of the college and a former Air Force tail gunner. So he was, you know, he probably knew his way around a gun. Yeah, I mean, anybody who yeah. has former military experience, yes. Yeah, so. yeah, they feel comfortable in that situation. Um, so as the four made their way up the tower, they first came across the two families. That's what you were talking about earlier. Uh, the Gabor family and the Lamport family, who had been shot initially by Whitman when he barricaded the observation deck. Several of them were already dead, and most of them were injured. But Jerry Day jumped into action and began caring for the victims as his colleagues pushed on. When the other three reached the top, they were able to push back the barricade enough to slip into the reception area. Using radios, they communicated with officers about Whitman's position on the deck. Martinez and McCroy, equipped with a 38 revolver and a shotgun, snuck out onto the deck as Crumb snuck around the opposite side of the tower. At now, this point, aren't they? Aren't the other people kind of steadily keeping him pinned down right now? They're trying to use the radios to like, where mm -hmm. is he at, so we can come in. Is that what I'm trying to get? I thought, um, kind of. The people in the tower are really the only ones that know where he is because he's just sticking his gun out through vents. So unless they see the gun come out or whatever, then they really don't know where he's at. And okay. he was constantly moving around. So it's like by the time they radioed up there, he might be in a different corner. Gotcha. But at this point, um. They had come in through one corner, okay? They came in to the reception at one corner, and then basically you have a square up top, right? Mm -hmm. The two officers, McCoy and Martinez, they go one way, and then Crum goes the other way, okay? They each reach the next corners. So they know he's not in these corners, he's not in the corner we came in at, there's only, there's one, only one corner left, right? So that was going to be the hard part. Somebody has to make a move. And surely Whitman knows the officers are up there with him, and they know that he could be around the very next corner, or he is around the next corner, rather. Mm -hmm. And finally, the tension is broken when Crumb fires a shot that draws Whitman's attention to his side of the deck, allowing McCoy and Mar Martinez to come up from the other side behind him with clear shots. Now, this is really funny, okay, because like you watch some interviews with Crumb, and when I watched him, he looks very reserved. He mm -hmm. looks almost embarrassed to be part of this and i thought man what, what does he have to be embarrassed about mm -hmm. right what could he and then i found a few articles it didn't mention it this way in the book um i guess ryan green didn't want to portray him this way but it's pretty common knowledge that crumb fired on accident he just slipped. he jumped out to make a move he mm -hmm. did do the brave thing he was like fuck it and he jumped around the corner but he almost <laughs> dropped his rifle and when it slipped out of his hand, he grabbed it, grabbed the trigger, and then shot through the roof of the tower. Nice. Yes. And, and then I helped. Yeah. <laughs> I helped? Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since he's been a tail gunner. Okay, yeah, give him a break. <laughs> he's been retired for a few years. 
But either way, it, it worked. It worked, okay, because it gave McCoy and Martinez clear shots. Martinez comes around the corner, fires first, emptying his six-shot revolver, but only striking Charles once in the ribs. And it didn't even slow him down. I don't know. I don't know how he missed all. Just come around blind, just right? eyes closed. One out of six, man. It, hey, there's a lot of a lot of tension. Um, but lucky for Martinez, McCoy was there, and he was standing by with a shotgun. He immediately fired two blasts in Charles' direction, hitting him both times, once in the chest and once in the face. No joke. Mm -hmm. The shells hit him so hard that it threw him back against the tower wall. But here's one of the craziest things that happened in this case. Charles, missing half of his face, bleeding from his abdomen, and coughing up blood, continued to raise his rifle to take aim at the officers. And Martinez was like, oh, hell no. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Fuck this. He grabbed the shotgun from McCoy and just rushed Whitman and shot him in the face, point blank, and it was over. Yeah, that's the, that's the whole scream thing. The, that's the killer it. always comes back with, nope, bam. Yep, double tap, baby. Nope, yeah. Zombie land. Double tap, rule number two or whatever. Um, but here's, here, so it was over, but only the officers in the tower knew of this, and they quickly realized that their lives were still in danger when shots from below continued ripping through the tower walls. Mm -hmm. So they tried to radio, but remember, not everyone had a radio because not everyone was police. Yeah, it's a bunch of random people There's out a there. bunch of civilians with guns out there, and they were not in contact with police. Um, of course, that were, and they were just down there using the tower for target practice. So Crumb grabbed a white towel... Crumb thought fast on his feet. Crumb's a man of action. You gotta yeah, give like, it to I gotta, him. I gotta do something now. He might, he might be fumbling action, but he's a man of action. <laughs> he grabbed a white towel out of Whitman's bag and waved it out the side of the deck to signal to the men below that it was indeed over. Ray Martinez and Houston McCoy were both credited uh, with Charles Whitman's death. And honestly, I think Crumb deserves an honorable mention for the distraction shot, right? Yeah. Regardless. I mean, accident or not, he jumped around the corner and he, showed himself first. He went up there with those that men takes and was balls, prepared bro. to do it. Like, he still he, tried. He was prepared to die, apparently. Mm -hmm. Two officers didn't, didn't, didn't freaking initiate first. it first. And he did. So, I mean, it just, yeah. The man deserves to be, to be honored for that sense. You helped, but that's, you helped. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, when all was said and done, Whitman had killed 16 people in total and wounded 32 others. So at this point in the show, let's, let's take a minute and let's mention um, each of the victims, starting with uh, his own mother, Margaret Whitman, his wife, Kathy Whitman, Edna Townsley, Marguerite Lamport, Mark Gabor, Thomas Ekman, Robert Boyer, Thomas Ashton, Thomas Carr, Billy Speed, Harry Walchuk, Paul Suntag, Claudia Rutt, Roy Schmidt, Karen Griffith, David Grumby, and of course, Claire's, Claire Wilson's unborn child. Yeah, and one of those, uh, I think one of the la later ones you said, that uh, Karen Griffin, she, uh, she died after a week in the hospital. Oh, yes. David Grumby uh, died after 30 years mm -hmm. because he finally took himself off dialysis, which... We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, in one of his notes, Charles asked to be cremated, but this request was not respected because fuck him. That's why. Because <laughs> fuck you. Because fuck him. Exactly. <laughs> putting you in a garbage um, disposal. <laughs> but instead, Whitman and his mother shared an awkward funeral service uh, where his coffin was draped with a flag, you know, because he was a veteran. 
I, I don't know how I feel about that, dude. Yeah, um, it's like you know nope, you, you are sharing a funeral with the with your mother, but you killed your mother, and your family's gonna come to this, and then. Also, we're honoring you, like we're giving you the salute and all this shit, and you get a flag on your coffin. Like, no, I, I don't no, think you so. Get, I feel like that should be like you. No, you, I don't that think gets so. Striked. You get your mil, your military service is striked if you then take like your military training to go murder a bunch of innocent people. Right. You don't get to have a military funeral. I don't think so, man. Yeah, it's like no, you know, it doesn't matter if you helped us out do anything nah. else. You went and fucking shot a bunch of civilians. Right. Nope, we don't. Yep, nope. Your name's off the list now. Seriously, throw him in the ocean, bro. Like whatever. Like just said, put him in a garbage disposal. Take him to a recycling he did, plant. He just he didn't deserve to have a funeral with his with his mother. No, not at all. Imagine how hard that was for the family. Yeah, for his coming, brothers. Yeah, his brothers and his father and his aunts, uncles, cousins, whatever. They're all coming to Margaret's funeral, and then he's there too. Yeah, I mean, I know he's dead, but it's just a constant reminder of what ha- I just I don't know. That just seems like a really awkward funeral. Maybe I'm being insensitive, but that seems it's very, very awkward. It's a roller coaster of emotions to walk by one casket really sad and one casket really mad. Right? Yeah. I, I don't know, dude. It just seems I just don't think those they should have been together. But let's get into some more of the aftermath of the shooting. Um, the tower itself, the tower's observation deck was closed for two years after the shooting, but reopened in 1968. However, it was closed back down following several suicides in 1974, and it remained closed until the fall of 1999. And access now is strictly guided and is scheduled by appointments only. It's like the fucking Eiffel Tower, bro. You can't even just walk up in the morning. I just love how it's like after several suicides, they were like, okay, fine, lock the door. Jesus. Yeah. Well, it was like, the seventies. How, how many people have to die because of this tower it, until finally some of that school is like, okay, fine, we'll yeah. put a lock on the door. Yeah. Like Yeah. They've added a lot of other stuff too, because uh metal detectors greet you as you enter the tower now. And uh but still scars from that day of the shooting can be seen in the tower's limestone, which is just insane. That's so haunting. Mm-hmm. To just see the bullet marks that are all over that tower. There's also video that there's a um, a broadcast, a local news broadcast from that specific day, like later that day, and they have actual footage, and it's just a camera that's just focused on the top of the tower, and you just see bits and smoke, just just all the firing shots hitting the tower in real time, and mm-hmm. it is, it's it's disturbing, honestly, because there's there's like there's no music, there's no nothing, you know, no one's talking. You're just seeing this event happen in real time. And you it looks like it's a war zone, but it's not. It's, it's a not. college campus at the top of a bell tower. Yeah. This isn't in the middle of some, you know, active combat. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about some of the survivors. Uh Houston McCoy, one of the officers who was credited with uh killing Charles Whitman was later diagnosed with PTSD. Um, I mean, obviously. Yeah. What a traumatic event. Like, obviously. oh my God. And you are like, you were right in it. Not only did you say now, a lot of people, but you also blew a man in half. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Ramiro Martinez, on the other hand, he used it as a launching pad, it seems like, because he became a narcotics investigator, a Texas Ranger, and a Justice of the Peace in New Brunfels, Texas. Yeah, I mean, that's, it he, did. It kind of got him a little he, bit of a head start. You know, start. he was a freaking legend around his oh, police yeah. office, dude. He's Wyatt Earp oh, at this point. Oh, my God. He's walking through Texas with his big old shiny star. Yeah, he's <laughs> a guy. Got chaps on and sh- He was sh- a goddamn <laughs> legend. Um, he also published a memoir in 2003 titled, They Call Me Ranger Ray, From the UT Tower Sniper to Corruption in South Texas. 
Um, you know, it's quite a mouthful. I mean, really? Yeah. And we, we needed a title, not a prologue. Am I right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's summary? It's, <laughs> what is this? Like, they call me Ranger Ray, from the UT Tower sniper to corruption in South Texas. Yeah, that's a long-ass... Like uh, thesis. Yeah. But he released that memoir in 2003, so if you guys want to know more about Ranger Ray, go check him out. Or like we pronounce it in the uh, Ned Kelly episode, Ranger Ray. Ranger Ray. I have no idea why we did that. I guess we thought in Australia... Bush just, I, I don't know. There, there's a lot on our minds. There's a lot on your mind when you podcast. It's a lot harder than it looks. Um, a long-surviving victim, David Gunby, he was the last one that we were talking about, had been born with only one functioning kidney, okay, as a child. And it was nearly destroyed when he was shot, resulting in his need for dialysis for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. Um, I just can't believe that son of a bitch hit his one good kidney. Like, oh, you mother! You, he didn't even know. I know. Uh, like you, Gumby, David Gumby didn't even know that, that he had one good kidney. Really, he didn't even know. Can at the you time? imagine? You got to be like, what did I do in my life? My God. Yeah. To get shot in my one fucking good kidney. I only got one, and I you mean, shot it. You know what though? I mean, I guess it was slightly better than getting shot in the spine and then like being paralyzed forever. But in a way, he kind of was he because on dialysis for he the next needed years. dialysis for thirty years. Mm-hmm. And like I said, after after living 30 years on dialysis, his health was fading, and David announced that he was refusing the treatments. He passed away within a week on November 12, 2001. Um, and since he died from a direct result of injuries, his cause of death was still listed as a homicide. 30 years later. 30, that's crazy, right? The a 30 direct result homicide. It's the slowest murder ever. He committed slow. some of the quickest murders and also the slowest murders ever. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, Charles Whitman slaughtered 16 people. He wounded 32 others that are suffering from serious physical and mental illnesses. Whitman obviously had some kind of mental illness of his own. He was prescribed dexedrine at the time of the shooting, although the autopsy showed that no sign of it was in his system. But well, that it, would be weak to take medicine. Yeah, exactly. But interestingly enough, his autopsy did reveal a cancerous glioblastoma tumor in his hypothalamus region of his brain. You know what that is, Andy? It's the region that's supposed to keep your body balanced and in a stable state called homeostasis. And your hypothalamus is like your body's smart control, pretty much. Is that much. why them alligators are so ornery? They are. <laughs> that's actually because they're a double oblongata. Oh, a double and because they have so much teeth. They can't take out no teeth. And they got no toothbrush. They all them teeth. But <laughs> your hypothalamus, like I said, it's your body's smart control and it regulates body temperature, blood pressure, hunger, and thirst your sense of fullness when you eat, your mood, your sex drive, and your sleep. So just existing. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much everything that makes you you. Um, urologists think that, this, that his medical condition was in some way responsible for the attacks. Well, that and the stress in his life. And, you know, he could have had, like, a form of CTE or something, too, because of the beatings from his father... Because his father, you know, did not avoid the face, especially no. not as he got older in the head. And then the motorcycle crash. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, the tumor. Um, speaking of the tumor, though, I looked into this type of tumor in relation to people committing acts of violence. And according to a 2018 article in the Scientific American, a recent study contains the review of 17 known cases where criminal behavior was preceded by the onset of a brain lesion or, or tumor. They're saying lesion in this, in this article. Um, the question was, is there one brain region consistently involved in cases of criminal behavior? The answer is no. The researchers found that the lesions were widely distributed through different brain regions. However, 
all of these legions were part of the same functional network. They were just located on different parts of, of a single circuit that normally allows neurons to cooperate with each other on specific cognitive tasks. Mm-hmm. In an, area, an era of increasing excitement about mapping the brain's connectome, this finding fits with our growing understanding of complex brain functions residing not in discrete brain regions, but in densely connected networks of neurons spread throughout different parts of the brain. Okay, So basically what they're trying to say is that for a long period of time, people would map out, scientists would map out the brain. They would say, this part of the brain is for, is tells you when you're hungry. This part of the brain is sex drive. This part of the brain, and that's not what they're finding. These, these big like connections and neuro impulses and whatnot that connect, they connect together all over the brain. Mm -hmm. And this network that reaches all different parts of the brain and can be interfered at any part is what controls all of these things. Like your hypothalamus, for instance. The network is associated with two specific components of moral psychology, theory of mind and value-based decision-making. Now, theory of mind refers to the capacity to understand other people's points of view, which he obviously did not. Also, not their, also their beliefs and emotions. This helps you appreciate, for instance, how your actions would make another person scared or hurt. Okay? Now, value-based decision-making refers to the ability to judge the value of specific actions or their consequences. This helps you see not only what the outcomes of your actions will be, but whether those actions and outcomes are good or bad. Okay. Okay, the letters written by Charles Whitman on the eve of his killing spree provide a window into a mind losing the ability to understand good, bad, and other people. Quote, It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy. I love her dearly. And she has been as a fine a wife to me as any man could have ever hoped to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. Yeah. End quote. That's the key. Because we didn't include that in the original letter, but that is directly from his letter that I yes. cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. Exactly. And if their actions were caused by brain damage and a disrupted neural network, were they acting under their own free will? You see what I'm saying? Like, if, if he can't, if the network for rationalizing is impaired by a tumor, these impulses aren't getting there, so he's thinking there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing yeah. wrong with this, okay? So, is he acting under free will? That's the question. To an extent, it's a, it's a valid argument, but there is also the argument to be made that he was openly kind of acknowledging there is something wrong with me. Absolutely. So it's like he knows that these things are not connecting properly, and he, yeah. but he's like, I don't know why. I don't know what's going on. I yeah. can't justify it, but I just got to do it. Right. And there's, I mean, there's no possible way that he would be able to diagnose himself either, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, I mean, he could have continued There's people to to living with this type of thing today in 2023 and still aren't seeking help for it. Yeah, he could have continued to go see those mental health uh, people Absolutely. that he was, you know, that was to one time. Too little too late. Yeah. Like he said, should have been was, doing that years ago. That's too weak. That's yeah. way too weak to go do that. Exactly. Some scientists have followed cases like Charles's and reaching the most extreme conclusion that by uncovering the biological causes of behavior, neuroscience shows that free will, as we ordinarily understand it, is actually an illusion. But these arguments depend on a faulty conception of free will. Free will should not be understood as a mysterious ability to cause actions separate from our brain activity. In fact, just the opposite might be true that free will requires certain connections between our brains and our actions. And after all, our brains are the biological basis of our identity, housing our memories, our values, our imagination, our ability to reason, and in other words, all the capacities necessary to make choices that are uniquely our own and to carry out actions according to our own will. 
Now, this understanding of free will allows us to ask better questions about the connection between the brain and criminal behavior when evaluating cases like Charles Whitman's. Instead of just pointing to the obvious fact that an action had a neural cause, which every action does, yes. every single action, whether you pick up your cup or whether you shoot someone, but we can ask whether a person's specific neurologic injury impaired the psychological capacities that were necessary for free will at the time. That is a complex a argument mouth, to get into. It's a as mouthful. Well. You might want to rewind and listen to that again because I read this article like three times before it really started to sink in, and it is. It is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty a, it's profound. A hard, it's, it's an argument to it's have It's terrifying, on both sides. honestly. It's, yeah. it's terrifying to know that you could get a tumor and it totally changed your brain chemistry. You're unable to reason. There were, in the book, um, Ryan Green covered some cases where different people were affected by brain tumors similar to what Charles has. One man actually gained a sexual attraction to children, never had it before in his life, went and got help for it, thank God, didn't thank, act yeah. on it, went and got help. And he's like, there's something wrong with me. Like, I all of a sudden am attracted to children. They found out he had a tumor. They removed it. He was fine. Thank God, yes. He went back to normal. That is fucking crazy. And then me and Andy covered a case on Strange Shorts not that long ago. Guy had a tumor. Started speaking in an Irish accent. Or mm-hmm. what was it, Irish accent? Yep. Had a yeah, head injury or a tumor. Never or even been yeah. to Ireland. Started speaking in an Irish accent. Absolutely insane. Exactly. Dude. Insane. So, with that said... We're at the discussion part of the show, Andy. Was Charles Whitman a monster or a sufferer or or a little both? I, I, it's it's hard to really pinpoint because it is, it is. It's nature versus nurture. He was brought up with you know a, you know abusive father who pushed him so hard, and then his 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 brain chemistry is already messed up. So it's just a compounding situation of whether or not this person was born you know with a deficiency, right? Or if the you know the situations he was brought into influenced it. Yeah. So it's hard to really pinpoint because yes, this man clearly has mental health issues. He has or, a tumor you know, in his brain. I was about he to has... say, or did the tumor literally affect certain processes from completing their function in his brain? Or what caused the tumor? Did the head injuries cause the tumor? Yeah, he and did. therefore the tumor caused the shooting. He had several um, head injuries like throughout his life and stuff. So that's not yeah. a that's not outside the realm of possibilities. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, you know, was he a sociopath? Was he mentally ill, or was his brain deformed by a tumor? Um, I think yes, all of the things. I, it's hard I to think, think <laughs> it's hard to really think sociopath because of like even in his letters how he says like I know I shouldn't do this. Like, that's I feel true. Bad that's for true. this. Like I, I'm so sorry. Like yeah. he, he genuinely, it's like he knows he shouldn't do this, that's but he can't true. rationalize why he can't do it. Yes, like he feels like he has to do it and he doesn't know why, and he but he's sorry for doing it. So yes. it's like almost like yeah, it's it's kind of like you almost lean more towards brain tumor or lean towards something behind the scenes instead of just sociopathy. Yeah. Because I agree. Yeah, he clearly knows that like he's doing something wrong, but he can't stop it. Yeah. So in that sense, would you vilify or sympathize with him? It sounds like you you're sympathizing with I, him a little bit. I sympathize bit. with the man before the actions. It's like after you take those actions, it's like you chose you not can't to get simpl- help. You can't yeah, sympathize like, with him anymore. It's like you yeah. you you went to a psychiatrist and you chose not to go back. You went to a doctor and you chose not to go back. Right. You, cho- you kept choosing not to do these things, and the people in your life didn't you know here- support you to continue to do these things. Right. So you had the options available to you right. to get the help you needed, and he rejected them. So it's Very like you true. have sympathy up until the point of when he does the the, the crimes. Yeah. Because it's like, yes, there was something wrong with you. 
right, had a right. brain tumor. You had an aggressive, abusive childhood. You had some things wrong behind the scenes. Right. But you had the options to get help, and you didn't take them. Right. So, And here's what's aggravating, though. Like, even if you do vilify him, which we do, we you, you can't put this person on a pedestal or even give them an excuse. That's bullshit. But even when you do vilify them to the public, it doesn't do any good. It, it doesn't. Does it deter future shooters? Because I don't think it does. No, because you're still it, talking about them. You're still you, you know, making a whole story about them. It's it. This is a. That's the biggest issue is the mental health issue. It's like if we could it, get the person who had these mental health issues to have gotten the treatment, yeah. it wouldn't have been about do we have to vilify them as a shooter or victimize them as a sh- It's like yeah, you yeah, wouldn't yeah, have them yeah. as a shooter if the if the mental health treatment that and health care that he could have gotten had actually been, you know, taken through the through its course. Right, right. Well, either way, guys, it's a tough discussion and you can go round and round with this and, you know, I found this quote at the end of uh, one of the articles that I read, and I thought it was perfect to end this episode on. Um, It says, As we struggle to contain accelerating gun violence in the U.S., let's at least let our choices be based on research and evidence rather than on prejudice and preconception. Mm -hmm. But guys, thank you so much, all of you new patrons, um, all of you old patrons. Thank you even more. And guys, uh, you know, tell your friends about Patreon. Also, let them know there's a free trial, right? So if they're if they're they're tight, whatever, they you know they can try it for seven days. Just get a little taste. Yeah, just get a little taste. A little seven days for free. Mm, that's what that's we like so to sweet. do. We like to give them a little taste. Mm-hmm. First Andy? one's for free. That's right. First one's free, guys, for seven whole days. Welcome. Credit card information is required. That's how we. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so guys, we'll see you next week. Thanks again, and uh, keep creeping. I think you should. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. See you guys. Bye. True crime guys. In the desert we like a barrage. It's okay if you clicked on us cause you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder. Get murder. Get murder. In the desert we like a barrage It's okay if you clicked on us Cause you thought we was true crime garage Now we ain't mad at you Sit down, let us talk at you I'm talking to the creeper army We out here making murder charming If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to check out all the other shows on our TCG network, as well as subscribing to our YouTube channel. Starting every Monday with new episodes of Strange and Unexplained, followed every other Tuesday by our audio drama podcast, Sandu Stories. Then, of course, new episodes of True Crime Guys every Wednesday. And if that's not enough, head on over to our Patreon, where you can have access to hundreds of hours of exclusive content, including older episodes, strange shorts, the latest edition of Sandu Stories, and of course higher thoughts. But until next time, guys, keep creeping. You hush your mouth, boy.